Welcome to An Abundant Future with Matt Powers. I'm your host, Matt Powers. This is a podcast where we talk about incredible regenerative things that can be done in your daily lives to partner with nature or scale up to a business. Things that are possible, things that are coming down the pipe, things that are theoretical. We're going to be talking about them all here as we search for regenerative solutions to guarantee abundant future for ourselves and our children. Thank you for joining us. Today we're talking to Grant Schultz about rewilding. Grant Schultz created Versaland in Iowa. It's an unbelievable regenerative site. It's the largest permaculture farm in Iowa and it's one of the largest regenerative operations in America. It is a national treasure. And some unbelievable things have happened there. Grant will lend you some incredible insight as we have this discussion and some incredibly upsetting things are happening there right now and he's also going to tell us about that at the end and what you can do to help so let's dive in so how are we going to rewild um i mean for me i have to take it one step at a time it feels like but it but looking at it from the outside from the macro as we said at the onset, you know, when we talked today, is I need to do this in a in a bigger way. I need to figure out how to like throw off things. You know what I mean? I need to get away um, yep. from those patterns, and uh, it's hard because every step of the way, you got to put that suit back on or put that hat back on in that old pattern. Yeah, you don't necessarily have to. You can certainly break the break the pattern. Um, I, I was on a, a trip last winter, and I was actually going to, to Canada, to Saskatchewan. You know, real long trip, a couple thousand miles, you know, dead of winter, open country, reasonably flat ground. And I was in my, my pickup truck driving to Canada, and uh, I was listening to the audio book, um, Lonesome Dove, which is a Larry McMurtry novel. Um, and in that book, it's about, you know, these, these, these folks that rustle some cattle on the, uh, in Mexico and they drive them across the Rio Grande and they take them all the way up into Montana. And, you know, at, when you're doing that, you know, all your needs are met along the way. There's very few, you know, foodstuffs that you're bringing with you. You know, you're kind of essentially foraging as you go, whether you're harvesting a, a, an animal or a deer or foraging for, you know, fruit or what have you, you, you know, your foodstuffs are, are acquired as you go. And part of that was, you know, the abundance of that, meaning a less altered landscape and just more wildlife there. But there was also that the property rights weren't quite so tight as they are now. And I was driving to Canada in my pickup truck, you know, trying to eat really well. And I would pull over to a gas station and I'd walk into this this gas station, and there'd be, you know, Gatorade and boxed whatever, and you know, even the beef jerky was full of soy and gluten and a bunch of stuff that I don't want to eat. You know, it was dirty beef jerky. And I went in there, and I, I couldn't eat anything in the store. You know, if I were to buy these things, I couldn't I couldn't eat them. And if I were to break out a rifle and shoot a deer on the side of the road, I'd be arrested. You know, I could certainly do that and I would feel good about that food and, and, and eat it. And, but in the modern day, you know, of, of statism, I'd, I'd be arrested. And even even said like that deer is eating probably, you know, foraging row crop fields, GMO, soy or, or, or corn. And the omega-3, omega-6 profile of that deer's own meat is thrown off from what nature would be because it's eating grain and not grass because it has that available, you know? So I, I had this, this juxtaposition of if I even wanted to move wild myself, if I jumped on a horse right now and I just trotted on down the way, the availability of foodstuffs, even if you're foraging, is so altered from what it would be in nature that it's, it's a really hard road to hoe, you know, road to hoe. Um, so yeah, it's it's tough. You'd be hyper conscious and very aware to even rewild consciously. 
Yeah, I've actually had the pleasure of talking to someone up here um, who's a survivalist permaculturist, and it's really amazing the overlap there because it's suddenly like, oh, well, I recognize the patterns of nature, permaculture, great, but then I've got all these survivalist skills that allow me to recognize what's food and tools and everything around me. It seemed like an incredible space for exploration. Yeah, yeah. For sure. I've been hoarding um, primitive woodworking tools since I was 16. And last fall, I, I broke them out and I made a, an Osage Orange uh, self bow, you know, long bow. And uh, I've never learned flint napping. I've never learned, you know, arrowhead making, you know, via stone tools. Um, but I've always wanted to. And my, my friend Peter Allen ran a PDC this summer, and one of his neighbors had a collection of, of points. He'd found, you know, spear points and ceremonial points and that kind of thing. And that as a craft to be able to, you know, not only find your your materials, but also create all the tools that you need from your own, you know, biome again. Like here's here's the stone, here it is. Let's go create the point that we need. And then we're gonna have that as a tool we carry with us at no cost. And we're gonna harvest all the food that we need at no cost. And we're going to survive and live and thrive and love and dance and, you know, whatever. And um, I don't know. I just really, really look back at that time, however long ago that was, and, and kind of think fondly of it. Well, they were in a permanent culture. There was no lack. The food was fresh. Um, and their inspiration and teacher was always omnipresent. It was nature. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when I was, when I was treating, when, when I was helping my wife with her um, alternative cancer treatment to stop cancer from coming back, um, it was mostly juicing, like incredible amounts of juicing. And so I had this like impression on my mind of juicing. And, but then I came up against this whole thing where it's like, how much fruit are we going to use? Holy cow. How is this like? How does this natural and, and it's it, it was working it was doing wonders but i was like how is this natural how is this like part of rewilding and then i was watching i kid you not a jane goodall chimpanzee documentary and i was watching them eat fruit and i kid you not they chew it they put it in their front lip and like you know they do right that front big lip thing they do and then they push down and suck the juice out and then spit out, and the, it, this is the pulp in front of their teeth, right? They spit out the pulp, and they just take the juice. And I, my, my, and I was like, they are literally juicing the fruit. And, I, and, then, and then it occurred to me that, you know, all we're doing when we're doing this juicing, they're like, oh, we're getting more nutrition. It's like, no, we're just going to be imitating nature. Yeah, that's probably partially true. I think that, that some of the other part of, of the functionality of juicing as a, as a recovery method is that, you know, we weren't eating well for so long. So it's a way to kind of concentrate only good foodstuffs and, and, and micronutrient density in a, in a short period of time, you know, into your own body. Cause I wouldn't want to be eating a lot of fructose, you know, fruit juice all the time. But, um, I definitely want to, I see the benefit in hyper concentrating good food after a time away from eating mediocre food. Well, I would say that for the past two generations, we've had, you know, increasingly less nutrient dense food. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's, yep. it's, it's and, and like it's, it's one of those things where it's like, where are we? It's like we don't even know where the, the scale is supposed to be or the yeah, meter yeah, is supposed yeah, to yeah, be. Genetics can go both ways for sure. I mean, we might maybe we're all kind of semi depleted as human beings, but we can push it back the other way. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, so so I feel like there's a lot of lessons to be learned from nature, but because nature's so out of whack because it's isolated into these little patches, um, we've got patchy nature right now. <laughs> and so we don't get a good signal. We don't get a good read on what lessons we're trying to learn. All we see is stress and recovery around us. Yeah. And so that looks in, like... Intact ecosystems. Where are they? Where are they? I think about that, you know, on the whole, like, you know, how many how many iterations of Google Maps could we have that have layers on there of 
here's where the intact ecosystems are, or here's where there's low amounts of air pollution. Here's where the water quality is still high. Here's where there's not a lot of uh, radiation. You know, I would love to see all of those maps in one website where you can just go through the layers and try and find that, that optimal human habitat of, you know, where do I want to be? You know, where's the soil reasonable? Where's the soil good? Where, you know, where is, you know, mental health, uh, high, where is, you know, water pollution low, where is air quality high? Um, you know, where can that be in the world? Wow. That would be absolutely incredible. I've actually spent huge amounts of time doing that as, cause I mean, when you have a family, when you have, you know, a wife who's had cancer and your children are more prone to that, you tend to actually look at that those maps over and over and over again and be like, where is yeah. the safest place to move? Yep. The universal human quest to the optimal biome. <laughs> where is it's it, It's so where true. It? It's so true. Where is it? It must be in Egypt. Let's go now. <laughs> right, right. It's biblical. It's it's ancient. This 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 searching for good land. Um, yeah. but, the, that's, but that's the that's, problem, that's, that's, isn't it? If you think about our, the incidence of our, our movement, I mean, I'm in Iowa, you know, let's be honest here. I'm in Iowa and I'm a pretty fit guy, but I walk around, I walk into town and I'm, I'm, I, I fear I'm, I'm disappointed. You know, not only is on, on, on a modernist level is my, my taxation is paying for the ill health of a lot of people. But, you know, my future children would be interacting with these people and what, you know, how are they influenced? You know, where do you want to be in the world where you have daily movement as a part of your natural life way, you know, and that's more or less a tribal society. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's so many layers, so many layers. So let's uh, the search for good land that totally grabbed me because this is the ancient thing that is in all of our minds. And I think that the problem with that is everywhere we've gone, we've destroyed the land with agriculture in the past 10,000 years. Yeah, I mean, and another level of that is that, you know, hey, look, you can live in the desert at a low population density. And as long as you're mobile, you're still gonna survive and thrive. But so we can make good land in the desert. Yeah, you could, certainly, you can improve it. Yeah. But the idea of, of, of scope and scale and, you know, whether you're static or you're, you know, roving, um, you know, you can, be, you, can, you can thrive anywhere in the world and human populations have in every sort of biome around the world. It's just a way of how you interact with that place. And again, like the idea of being static, you know, hey, I own my, my home on this quarter acre lot and even in a drought, I'm still here. I'm not going to go on down the road. Um, you know, that's... It's not in line with how humans interacted with Earth for millennia. Absolutely. You know, I've been thinking a lot of, lately about how um, we worshipped the mastodons uh, definitely before we hunted them because we followed them around because they were the annual to perennial, annual to perennial uh, mechanism. They would tear up the land and open up, you know, they would, they would tear the land. And so annuals would come in, fast-growing annuals. Uh, and we'd be following them for that high energy annual seed and annual f uh, food, the vegetables. Yep. And, and, yep. My yeah. friend Peter Allen named his farm uh, Mastodon Valley Farm, very much aware of the, the megafauna and the loss of the megafauna. Yeah. Have you, have you gone on any of these? So I, when I was in high school, one of the requirements for graduation was you had to spend 10 days outside in the winter in the White Mountains three days alone in solo. Um, and so have you gone to any of these things where, where you go out into the wilderness? Oh, wait, was that retreat in Canada one like that, where you go out and camp? <laughs> yeah, no, the retreat in Canada was, was, uh, was isolatory, but not, uh, not super primitive. Okay, okay. Um, I've certainly fasted for multiple days, and I, I really believe in that on many levels. Um, but yeah, have I gone out in nature as an adult and tried to survive? Um, I, I, I can't say I have. I, I think in my core I have that ability, um, but that might be a little bit, bit of my own hubris. You know, you know, can you do it? Probably. Have you proved it? 
Uh, no, you know, do you have a Mylar space blanket with you from the trunk of your car? Sorry, <laughs> that's not available. You know, not, not, an op- not an option. But I think that it, that in in you know, Paleolithic times, you would have already had that community and the and the availability of tools kind of with you. So even if it's a primitive tool, you can go out and harvest the animal or you know find some grubs or or, or what have you. So that shock of you know having comfort and and shelter and food and then all of a sudden having nothing was probably pretty rare in history. I mean that would have been a traumatic event. Uh, you know your your tribe got raided and you were displaced and you had nothing and now you have to survive. That was probably very rare to occur. Um, but nonetheless, if you're really good and you're a survivor, you still find a way through it. So you know in the modern day maybe that's you know kind of eating canned food until it's all gone and you've got a week to kind of adapt. But I think in a real wild place, I could probably pull it off. Oh, Um, I I know you can. Yeah. But I'm not in a wild place right now. You know, I've been... There's so few wild places left. My, my, My son, you know, my son is definitely more of an expert in this than I am. He grew up riding horses and horse camping up in the Sierra Nevadas in Yosemite. And he knows the names of the plants, their uses, which one's soap, which one's medicine, which one's food. He can fish. Um, he's never gone deer hunting, but uh, but I have, I have confidence that he'd be able to do it. And uh, he knows how to clean animals, clean pigs. Um, no. So, I mean, it's almost like there's this return happening right now where people who went to boarding school are having children <laughs> that are much more savvy and yeah. wild. Like I said to someone the other day, I, I have a feral man child. He's 11. <laughs> yeah, I, I had this, uh, I mean, I, I grew up in the suburbs. You know, I was a, I was a generation removed from the farm. So I was very much in, in the burbs. And the way our school district was put together, and I went to public school, um, was they had a roving outdoor education teacher. And I, I will remember this for the rest of my life. The, the guy's name was Bill Collette. And he was just sort of this earthy, hippie guy who would go to all the schools from you know K to 12 and kind of do demonstrations and you know teach the kids about the natural world as like an attache to this public school system. And I was in the fourth grade. And we had this kind of like two-hour-long on-site field trip and he bill had come to the the classroom and he brought a refrigerator box and he put it down this kind of ravine near the school and he said hey kids this is an atlatl and he had an atlatl and if you know what an atlatl is it's a throwing device to be able to more efficiently throw a, a six foot long spear and uh he then chucked this atlatl the spear probably 200 yards at this refrigerator box and nailed it, put a spear right through it, you know, explaining, Hey, this is probably a Macedon and I just killed it, you know? And then he's like, Hey kids, you want to try it? Yeah, of course. Okay. So we're 10 years old and we're chucking spears with an atlatl in suburban Bettendorf, Iowa at a refrigerator box, you know, for us, it was probably like 60 yards away, but still a significant distance. And, you know, you miss or you get close or I think a few people probably hit it. That's that's amazing. And that was part of natural life for millennia. And that was in, you know, the late 80s for me. And if you think about doing that now in 2017 in a suburban Benton, North Iowa, are, you know, are kids going to be chucking atlatls at boxes? I don't think so, you know. So there's definitely the ability to always – rewild your kids or re-engage them or expand their scope of knowledge but it's real hard to do that in a public school system today you know in 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 society i don't see it happening that often i think it's they're too afraid everyone's too postmodern. yeah i don't see anyone learning anything though in k through 12 public school um especially especially if their parents teach them to read and write before they get there or because the teachers are so poor that they have to do it themselves yeah, and every day I think about like if if I was more, if I would have felt a little more agency as a child that I I fully understand as an adult, I would have. I mean, I skipped school whenever I could, but I would have just 
you know, locked out or unenrolled, whatever, eighth grade education. Okay. I'm out of here. Yeah. 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 And you know, it's, Ooh, there's so many people with with amazing uh, histories, personal histories of doing just that and making a huge difference. My my great grandfather, when he was 12 or 13, got his parents to sign him over to the military, <laughs> to the Navy, actually, specifically. Um, and he went on to be a three star admiral, last Commodore of the Seas. So, I mean, extraordinary things happen when you know what you want. Um, and I think that our society has no idea what it wants. And that's why it's like, well, suggest something. And that's what the TV is, entertainment, food. It's a system of suggestion instead yes. of knowing yep. yourself and going out and getting it. What, what, who, who has the quote of, uh, you know, either you design your own life and if you don't, someone else is doing it for you. That might be Charles Eisenstein. No, uh, I don't think he's the original originator of that, but uh, but nonetheless, it's a good quote. And if Charles says the same, then I support that. Um, I was I was talking to a woman Saturday, who is working on her PhD research, and she she had interviewed a friend of mine's child, who was I think nine. She was interviewing her about death, about you know what she thought would happen, or you know what would occur when she died, and what she would like her funeral if you want a funeral what it would look like and um, like two days before that i was talking to an older gentleman at the at the at a coffee shop and he's like i'm, I'm getting really old and I'm, I'm thinking about dying you know like what what that entails and in both those scenarios you're really focused and and forced to look at what do i really want out of life what do i really need what do i want to experience what do i want to be remembered by what do I want to contribute to the earth and you've really got to look at death to drill down and, and see those core components and the core components are always so simple yet so many of us and I'm, I'm guilty oftentimes as well of forgetting what really matters and you know there's a few things you can do in life to really focus on hey what really matters and I think we're all ultimately the happiest and the most productive with whatever our pursuits are when we focus on what really matters what we really care about what do we want to contribute to the world what do we want out of life and uh, so much of life in postmodernism is, is commercial and status oriented and TVs and Denali's and clothes and um, it's oftentimes a pretty high hurdle to overcome. I tend to think that the first hours of our day are the most precious. And I know there's that whole thing about how we need to end our days with positive thoughts because it reshapes the way our brain actually works. But that first, that sacred hour when we first wake up, to sit down and ask those very questions. What's the most important thing today to me? Not your to-do list, your macro, your big things. Um, <laughs> those kind of things are the, are the, those are, those are the gravitational pulls that guide me towards rewilding and regeneration. <laughs> and so I get up every day and I have my projects, which are part of like who I am, my mission statement for what I'm doing. And I write out everything I need to do. And, I, and, it, and it's always like big. Like it's never like today we're doing this. It's like that'll come. But it's like that's part of this effort. And it's hu this huge effort. <laughs> <laughs> like getting K through 12 education to include permaculture in America. That's my mission. Yeah. And, and you know what I mean? And then, and then today, what am I doing as part of that mission? And it puts me in perspective, um, to this huge change that I, that, that, that I have to. And so instead of taking that day and being like, this is the thing I did, I organized this. It becomes the day that I took the, that step towards that goal and suddenly that that step becomes larger 
and I start taking more steps in my stride because I see that goal not as this and not the step each day. Sure. So to take giant steps and to stay on, on, on course, I think we really need to ask those questions that you're talking about every morning. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of um, two stories in, in recent memory. Um, one, I, I, I think you were there too, was, was PV2, was the Permaculture Voices 2 conference, was so good. It was so good. But I remember uh, listening to, to Toby Hemingway's presentation there. And I think that's probably available somewhere on the web. So anyone who hasn't seen that, Toby Hemingway's talk at PB2 is just epic. But I, I think in that talk, at least I'm attributing it to that, was he mentioned about the, uh, the amount of hours a week that a hunter-gatherer actually worked in like an intense effort kind of thing versus being in a place and experiencing it and being with tribe and family and food and fauna, uh, you know, was drastically lower than the 40 hour work week today. Oh yeah. And I have another friend who is very wealthy and very productive and very intelligent. And he works for uh, private equity and you know, he's buying companies and selling companies and that kind of thing, but it's an international enterprise. So he's you know, flying around all the time and whatnot. And uh, anybody in that industry really gets in like, you know, two emails a day and they've done their work for the day. You know, they're really only getting an hour or two of work done a day. And it might have exceptional consequences, but the amount of actual effort entailed was pretty minimal. And maybe that's like an 80-20 sort of thing, but that other 80% of, of, you know, not doing much, you might as well just do nothing at all. And I feel that in my own life is that the idea of, you know, hey, I get a, a couple great hours of creativity in or, or aerobic hustle in. And then the rest of the time, if I'm honest with myself, I'm not getting a lot done. I'm just kind of walking around and experiencing things and, you know, thinking about stuff. And that's it's being honest. I was mostly saying, like, hey, you can get a lot done in a half an hour a day if you, if you focus on what you're after. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And I, for me... I really need to go back to like my my list like I I have a, a notebook here that is about a month old it's one of those uh, five stars <laughs> you know, ring notebooks um, Not the Frank version with the uh, psychedelic uh, clownfish on it no no just just the blue just the standard okay. we just get you know blues and greens that's kind of my thing and right. it's full like the whole thing every single page is full and it's got all these diagrams and 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 lists and goals and this isn't even my gratitude journal this is just my planning i have a whole different journal for that for the night so this is like and i, I have a stack of these and it, i literally go through them in my day and it keeps me on point and that's the only way i'm, I'm as productive as i am huh yeah what did you do before the written world, a written word? Well, I don't know. I mean, some of my earliest memories in elementary school were me writing poetry and stuffing it in my mattress so my brothers wouldn't find it and beat me up. Ha, huh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was a musician, and so I was always writing and writing and writing. I, I think about, like, before uh, runes or cuneiform or, you know, any sort oh. of written word. <laughs> What did we do as humans do? Oh. To, I mean, our, our task lists were three items long. They weren't, there was not this, you know, weight, this anxiety of all these things to do. We have to actually write this down and remember it all. We just kind of like, ah, let's eat today or it's fall. Let's. I think our cultures were much more intense than that, Grant. I think that the Celtic people had a very intense and complex culture. And so even though we were a mobile people. years and then think about it. Well, they didn't. They didn't do agriculture. I, I, oh, okay. The Celts were were part of the nomads. Um, I, I don't think any of those people did agriculture. I think it was like Romans still that for those areas. And what, what era? I think you're thinking of. But okay. Just, anyway, go ahead. All right. So, all right. Well, either way, I could be wrong. That's okay too. But um, I I studied Irish. I studied Irish history uh, at NYU, and so. My understanding is they were a verbal people 
their culture was all verbal and that's why we don't have much we've got some reflections in early irish history of what their culture was like they got written down like in the toyne and other kind of documents but we really don't know what celtic culture was like there was like complex middle like in the middle ages there was like complex things that we didn't know about like uh, we had our own martial arts but we don't know very much about this because it was all verbal and so i think if we go back before writing i was a talker and a storyteller and i was a listener and so like my son he can literally just sit there and take everything in he's a audio learner so he'll, he'll like go and play the piano and like it'll be perfect and he'll be like what is that about and it's like yeah because he heard it perfect um so i think that i was better at hearing uh-huh. what that's a, that's a definite talent yeah yeah well that's what happens when you unschool and you got the habitat with with instruments everywhere I, i've always had instruments everywhere because i was a musician and i was always playing so he just saw me doing it and thought it was another language just like Someone that grows up in a you know a uh, Spanish and English household, they grow up speaking no, both. So that's what happened, um, and anyone can do that. It doesn't. Uh, it, it's just about them feeling like they can. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, we're the same age or close. I'm 36. You're playing 35. Yeah, I'm 35. Um, like I used to, you know, I was conversational in German. I was never probably truly fluent. But I really think, gosh, I want to learn four languages before I die. And every year I wait, it's going to be that much more challenging. Uh, like the brain plasticity thing, you know, pick up a new instrument, learn a new language. Yeah, I don't know if I believe that anymore. You know, the, the, the trope that it's more challenging to learn a language as an older person than it is as a younger person? I think that's true and not true. I think that as a as a small child we absorb everything and that's just the truth but as a child like a 9-year-old or 10-year-old I don't think they have the same acuity as someone who's a concentrating like adult um and it, I I really just don't mm-hmm. um I I mean I've seen well, what about what about time availability though too is that many adults are distracted by other things Well that's just it if you gave the adult complete time, like for instance, adults who go on missions and have to learn a language in only uh, a few weeks, they do it, and it's shocking. Uh, but it happens and, all the in time. In context, those adults are nineteen and not seventy. No, they are seventy, like my in-laws. So it's real. People huh. do this. I don't. I don't. And you know what? My dad didn't play trumpet since he was a kid. It drove him nuts when he got um, divorced. I convinced him that um, th- that kind of hesitate because he, he admitted to me that he always wished he, he, he had kept playing. And I and I kind of like put my foot down and was like, listen, whoever told you that, that's that's a lie. It's like if you want it, you can have it. And my yeah. dad to this day plays trumpet every night and he got remarried. And with that woman, he performed with like a 13 piece band at their wedding. So I really nice. think, and he never did that, you know, as a youth. Yeah, it's all context. Yeah, it, it, I, it's I all that. belief. If we believe we can do it, we can do it. I've, yeah. I mean, I've met older people that you are. You can dream uh, it, you can do it, Matt Powers. <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> I mean, if, if you can see yourself doing it and maybe not. Dreaming implies that you're half asleep, right? In, in some sense. But <laughs> if, if you can believe. And that and that shows confidence and in, in control, perhaps. But if if you can believe and have that assurance and confidence, I believe that you can work on it. Yeah, I, I walked by the antique store last week, and there was a bunch of like super vintage instruments in the window. Yeah, totally some old music professor, some collector, or somebody. And I, I played cornet when I was a kid, like the, the short trumpet. I never sunk as low as to play the trumpet. <laughs> and I, I was the, the super cool big spider back. 11-year-old jazz musician kind of, kind of kid. Oh, I, I played saxophone, and, and I, there's a picture of me in third grade feeling like I'm mysterious, too. <laughs> anyway, there was this like, piece of crap cornet in the window, and I was like, ah, ah, I miss those days so much, so much. And, uh, yeah, I guess I was just feeling the call. I was feeling the call. 
Yeah, you know, there's something to that. So rewilding and music and culture. It's all part of tribal tribalism, you know? You sit around the fire and play, and, and play music. Do you know what happens after you sing with the same group of people after two weeks of singing with them? Um, you you die in battle for them? No, your heartbeats actually go in sync. It's wow. it's really wild. So um, just like with, with women living together, their cycles start aligning, our mm. hearts become one. Sound like scriptural? Right. It's actual. So huh. if we if we get together and we sing, um, it creates this community that is physical, that we, I mean, it's real. So I just think that if we bring back music, um, we bring back singing, we bring back this participation with the rhythm of life, there will be this oneness in our hearts with nature, with the animals, with all these other rhythms and patterns that we can't even detect. Um, we can use machines to detect these things, but the actuality, the reality um, that many of our ancestors realized in their spirituality um, and philosophies, um, they're always going to be beyond our understanding and always going to be interplaying at more finer levels, I think. Yeah, there's so many layers of, uh, of existence that we can, we can kind of feel on an emotional level. We don't really understand the, the reasoning behind it and science every now and then fumbles upon something that, that that touches on how it how it actually happens, but it can never understand everything. Yeah, I've studied enough, um, especially with mycology in the past uh, two years, to know that our way of classifying science, our way of classifying people and plants and all this stuff, is not actually the reality. Um, it's much more beautiful and complicated, <laughs> um, and. And it's much more entertaining, uh, stunning, and ultimately driving than anything from that I was offered from that 80s world. Because I see, I really feel like there's the 80s world that people in the aughts are living a hyper reality of uh, in like the 2000s, like where we live right now. People are living just a hyper reality from the 80s. All the people running your music, running your TV and your movies were the people coming up in the 80s. And now they're the executives, and they have say, and that's why we got all the, everything got so 80s out. We, well, actually, you can trace it back to the 70s when those guys were, there was a drum beat, that 70s, 60s, uh, no, no, that 70s disco drum beat with rock and roll that started, that ended and we went into the 80s. So it's the world of the 80s behind us. That's all I see is that we have this promise of a world that doesn't exist, and then we have this confusion that lies between what really is the world and what it can be and so it's bridging those gaps in people's heads that is the hardest thing to do i mean yeah. we, we live in a world where people don't understand the basics of nature they don't understand you know how to work with other people because they've been trained to compete with other people and think that's stealing or you know let's, let's tie this together then is that Say there's a traumatic event in your life, and I've, I've talked with several people this week that have had something happen like that, where they've had, oh, jeez, I almost died. What really matters? And then how you tie what really matters into, into what you want to achieve and how you get there. You know, how, how are you doing that? What For you, what are your core beliefs? What really matters? And what are you doing to get there? Yeah. Absolutely. That's a question. What are you doing that really matters? Oh, I, I, I know with you, but I want to hear you say it. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, what really matters is all of our families having a viable future. Um, I can go into all the crazy stuff that's wrong, but that's really it. We need to make sure that we have a viable future um, for our kids because it looks like they're getting crumbs. And there was a big feast, and now they've got nothing. Yeah. Um, and so what I'm doing is I'm trying to fix our culture by attacking and correcting the very thing that generates our culture, which is the education system. And so some of us are creating 
examples and they're all along, all along the the supply chain right all along the different the different uh, ec- economies I mean with you you're, you're showing an example of what a real regenerative farm should look like and I'm trying to create an example and instill an example of what real K through 12 core education should be and it's pattern literacy it's nature literacy it's permaculture um, mm-hmm. and it's generalist it's not the PDC it's seeing all these things in the language of nature holism you know regrarians you know holistic man all of it seeing all of it as part of the system of nature and so that's why I'm creating all these K through 12 materials that's why I have my online courses and that's why I'm creating this final link of which you are a part uh, between K through 12 education and professional development. Um, and without that educational component showing to like the pathways to a regenerative economy will never generate that act, that world that we want. If we're not yeah. paying the money into a new economy so that new economy displaces just like in nature right displaces that that ecology and creates something new unless it's in our education and everyone grows up feeling like yes this is the modality of our society of our culture we trade this or we we grow this or we seed save that all those things it all boils down to matching those patterns in our culture and the only it's education and it's economy and a pdc won't do it yeah, I, I see this um, kind of observationally. I mean, let's be honest. Industrialism has heavily weighted enterprise value um, against regenerative life ways, right? So oil is just too cheap and too available. Um, and, and though you can still create a definite regenerative life way, um, there's pressure against it monetarily from, from the industrial economy. So it's still doable, but it's, it's challenging at times. Um, but there's certain elements that I see like a sweet spot of age, you know, 10, 11, 12 to 18, where your overhead is in all likelihood reduced because you're not, you know, feeling the need to provide for all of your own needs. You have some sort of a family unit that still is intact or, you know, maybe you don't, but nonetheless, um, and your, your needs just aren't necessarily that large. So you're able to attack an enterprise in a different way that you would as an adult or with other other external obligation. So I want to see more, you know, cross-country teams that are all summer training mowing lawns with size, getting a cardio workout, you know, not emitting any carbon emissions, and maybe having a, a flock of sheep with them for grazing these lawns that they're every day they're going out there and they're mowing lawns and grazing lawns of the sheep and, and size, you know, and they can earn an in, a living doing that. And it's unconventional and it's totally rational. Uh, and that's like the sweet spot of, of taking that risk. You're 13. You want to, you want to get a low resting heart rate and you want to be cardiovascularly fit and you want to crush state cross country this fall. You know, how can you do that and earn a living at the same time? Um, I, I see things like that really being the avenue to that coming together. Yeah. So how are, how are things going with, with your mission, bringing Iowa's greatest example of regeneration? Well, it, it's, it's super challenging at the moment, actually, right now. Well, tell uh, us more. Well, in the last six months, I have a pretty diverse 143 acre farm orchards um you know pastures just a lot of diverse cropping happening and uh our our, our local planning and zoning department has really put the clamps on it they, they actually put a moratorium they banned retail orchards in april which put that business completely out of business for me um and they're, they're saying that they're going to change the land use plan, you know, a year from now, and that that might be revisited. And in the meantime, you know, I'm, I'm out of business in that department, which was my major, uh, you know, primary business. 
So uh, I'm seeing the, the layers of the state, you know, bureaucracy really impacting my, my business, my, my livelihood. Um, and in trying to kind of work through that, I realized that it wasn't so much just a random occurrence of events. It was the very conscious directed effort of a few people on, on the staff of my county that more or less had a, a vendetta against agriculture outside of a very tight and controllable scope. Um, and that's made me realize that what may be what some would describe as a, as a psychic vampire, you know, a, a victim of modernity of statism, the, the mental health issues that occur as a result of that uh, impacts a lot of people trying to do a good thing. So I'm trying to work through that right now. And it's super challenging as someone who's highly self-reliant and independent to impact that, that layer of, of reality that actually has, you know, the barrel of a gun pointed at you, you know, the state saying you can't do that. You can't regenerate landscapes. You can't fish in a pond on your farm. You can't sell an apple off of a tree on your farm without a permit, but we outlawed the permits. Uh, it's pretty pretty crazy stuff. And you aren't alone. This is a pattern um, that has occurred, and it likely will occur again. And people need to know um, that they're not alone because there are people out there facing the same exact kind of discrimination and targeting that comes with change. Because yeah. what, we're, what we're creating doesn't look like everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, message to my neighbors. Uh, just because I don't grow row crops does not mean that I'm assaulting your identity or your ancestors. Like, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay to be different. That's okay. It's okay to have a different colored skin. It's okay. It's okay to like a different kind of music. That's okay. Just let it be. Just let it be. Yeah, and, and maybe observe <laughs> and and take in and not let it uh, touch you emotionally and, and you might learn something, right? <laughs> so what can we do to help with that? That's that's a, uh, and, and what can communities do in general when these kinds of things start happening? Well, I, I think that, I mean, you and I now live thousands of miles apart, so community is is anywhere you're connected, wherever you are in the world, whether that's the same locale or not. Um, I, I put together a video that, that was released on Facebook a couple of days ago. Um, if you go to facebook.com slash VersaLand, you should be able to see that video and please watch it in its entirety. It's 20 minutes long and share it if it, if it resonates with you. Uh, but more importantly, contact my local board of supervisors, which are elected officials of the county, and say, and, you know, email them, call them, and say, uh, I know of VersaLand, or I've been to VersaLand, or I live in the area, and I've, you know, bought a pawpaw tree from, from Grant, uh, and, you know, this place matters, and I, I, I want to buy this food, or I want to come to this place and experience it, and I want to contribute to your local economy, and there's social change happening here and there's major environmental benefit happening here. You need to recognize that and honor it and support it. Uh, and I think that under that avenue, that could be, can be accomplished. They want to, they want to support things that are environmentally beneficial. Um, and if they know that there's benefit to do that, they'll do that. So yeah, don't do it in a mean way. Don't say, Oh, you must be a show for Monsanto. Just say, hey, I think you need to look at this from the, the big picture, the 40,000-foot level. Yeah, and I think that's kind of what we need to do in a lot of these instances because currently people are finding more and more that, hey, wait a second, everything I want to do is illegal. <laughs> the Salton book. I actually referenced that in the, in the video. Yeah. Yeah, and honestly, if anyone listening to this knows – Joel Salatin and wants to reference and reach out to him and say, Joel, this, this situation has your name all over it. Um, share it with him. Cause I, you know, a few of these supervisors, I'm sure respect Joel Salatin. And if Joel called him up and said, Hey, you're destroying an ecosystem here. Maybe you should support it. Uh, I think they'd listen. 
Absolutely. So towns everywhere are facing this. And what we need to do is we need to band together and we need to show not 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 threaten not demand but we need to show that there is real demand from warm happy excited people that everyone wants to be around yeah yeah, yeah. i'm trying to build a, a farm incubator here that is community that is exactly that that is self-support that is that is yes yeah and so we have to make sure that when we are are talking about these new ideas these changes that it's inviting so that people are like, well, those people are just angry. They want to plant trees everywhere. It's like, <laughs> no, 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 no. It should be those people are the nicest people I've ever met. They want to plant trees everywhere and it changes everything. <laughs> it makes no. it. And, and so I think that that's really going to make a huge difference when you show that there's enthusiasm about VersaLand. When we show that there's enthusiasm about you know front yard gardening, or rainwater harvesting, and we show a benefit because VersaLand is all about stacking benefits, as you'll see in that this video, and I'll I'll put the link to the video in the description of this week's podcast so you can follow along and help Grant and help everyone maintain a stunning example of what Iowa should be as in this regenerative movement that we have growing right now. And a lot of people don't know that there's this regenerative movement growing right now, but they feel, they feel it. They're like, Oh, something must be done. It's like, you're part of the movement. You're like, Oh, I can't believe there's this flooding. Oh, this is wrong. You're part of the movement. I can't believe we don't we don't have our own local apples. I have an apple tree out back. It's ripening right now. Why are we getting these apples from all these? You're part of the movement. Yeah. So I think the time is now to get active in any way that you can in this, in any of your programs, um, any of the any of the people in your area that are facing similar problems. The time for action is now. So Grant, thank you so much for coming on and sharing that with us and having an awesome conversation about rewilding and what that can mean. Thanks, man.